Good evening. Today is November the 12th, 1965. I'm sure everyone is exhausted after our nearly 36-hour storm preparation shift and are in need of some relaxation. I have here a list of precautions to take. I know we've all heard everything on this list several times, but I believe one last time before our long-awaited respite could do no wrong. Be certain that all flashlights are working and that you have an ample supply of dry cell batteries. Give each fire extinguisher a thorough check, especially those in the generator room and kitchen. Ensure that the nozzle has not loosened and nothing has been damaged. Ensure that the expiration date has not passed. Be sure that each of you has enough water stored that you could drink comfortably for three months. Finally, we need to be certain that our fuel storage area is properly heated. If each of us takes the initiative to make these checks, in the event of an extreme storm, we will be entirely prepared. Harold Bright has asked me to thank all of you that assisted in his observation of what was previously thought to be a group of SEALs. He has written an update on their status, since many of you have taken an acute interest in this anomaly. Just this morning, Dr. Bright has made the first detection of their ambulatory capacity. These creatures reached a more and more excited state as the wind and snow increased in intensity. He described the motion they made in this state as a pulsation or quiver, almost a vibration that seemed to move from one body to another. Harold described this as if there were some invisible cloud moving among the group. As it enveloped each body in turn, they moved in a strange manner. The movement gave Dr. Bright more of an indication of their body shape and proportions. Harold has tentatively described these creatures as invertebrates, judging by their apparent lack of an endoskeleton and slug-like bodies. The strange motion continued to grow stronger until an orca, in a show of suicidal violence, jumped from the sea, beaching itself next to the creatures. The vibrating action of the creatures reached a high watermark at this point, each creature seeming to sort of glide closer to the writhing killer whale as it pulsed. It was at this point that the weather began to reach dangerous levels, and the storm windows had to be shut, blocking all vision to the conclusion of the scene. Dr. Bright assumes that had he been able to continue to observe, he would have seen the feeding method of these creatures, and we would have known them to be carnivorous. You may remember Dr. Bright sprinting from window to window as we closed them all over Penhurst. This was his goal, but he says he thought he only glimpsed the creatures slinking up some of the southern mountains. Harold has said there are three possibilities that could explain this sighting. The first possibility is that there are many more of these amorphous creatures than previously thought. They may have escaped being observed because they are, like the seven-year locust, buried or somehow hidden for great lengths of time before becoming active in their adulthood. The second possibility is that the creatures have the ability to traverse the environment much faster than we have observed. It is possible, if this is the case, that Dr. Bright has observed the same creatures both near the ocean and again on the mountain. The third, and Harold admits most likely possibility, 
is that he has simply mistaken another creature for the slug-like vibrating creatures. And the only specimens still sit where he first observed them, possibly consuming the orca. After the weather clears, Dr. Bright will appreciate any help with his observations, and anyone assisting will be included in his research. Now that we've finished our official business, we can discuss the mystery at hand. I haven't had much time to research the abandoned office, what with the inclement weather and preparations thereof, but in my spare time, I managed to find three documents that seem to have bearing on our current mysteries. One of which is an excerpt from a book on the history of mathematics. Another is a clipping from an aged newspaper from our mysterious office, while the last is simply a matter of current record. I shall here read each, beginning with the historical mathematics article. The excerpt is from a book, a personal possession of mine, titled An Informal History of Mathematical Thought. It is a light guide on the progression of common ideas and theories of mathematics throughout human history. The chapter this comes from deals with a certain Carl Friedrich Gauss. He was a German mathematician and physicist during the 18th and 19th century, often thought of as one of the greatest mathematicians to have ever lived. He was able to determine the course of the asteroid Ceres, which orbits between Mars and Jupiter, despite the fact that it could only be observed for three degrees of its rotation. He made many advances in other mathematical realms as well, including being the first man who discovered the possibility of non-Euclidean geometries, which deals with objects using an alternate model of geometry that is distinct and utterly alien to those that humans tend to use. The name of the ship the crew were presumably aboard in the German midshipman's log I read previously was taken from Gauss himself, which is why I once again began researching the man. The aforementioned article lists various quotes detailing the man's opinions on various subjects. The following quote is described as Gauss's thoughts on an unknown subject after attending a lecture by William Wuehl immediately following the release of a book called on the plurality of worlds. The quote is, of course, translated from German. Begin quote. I now understand an idiosyncratic necessity of the universe. There is a fifth plane outside of the spatial dimensions and that of time. Two objects can exist at the same location in time and space, yet never come into contact. They can be the equivalent of hundreds of miles or hundreds of years apart but across a plane that is entirely other. If somehow the objects were to drift close enough in this plane, they could possibly interact, but it would be effectively impossible, unless somehow one of the objects could sense both time and this plane in the same manner that we perceive distance." End quote. Gauss was reported to be in high spirits from this day until his death in 1855. The second of our pieces of history comes from the newspaper clipping I found in our abandoned office. I was only able to skim a few documents, but this one caught my eye. It was contained in an airtight plastic folder. I was forced to slit the folder open in order to read it. 
It now seems that there is some sort of connection between the seemingly disparate documents in that office. What follows is an article circled in red ink, similar to how the interview with McMurdo was indicated. It appears to have been cut from the November 1910 issue of the Corinth Observer. Begin quote. May establish sanitarium, Maytown. Rumors on the north side are to the effect that the Hotel La Pintoresco will be leased by an eastern syndicate and converted into a sanitarium. It is said that, owing to the location of the building on a hill, practically away from immediate neighbors, there would be no objection from the residents of the north side, and it is thought that the surroundings and elevation would be ideal for sanitarium purposes. Once the facility is operational, it should ease the current excessive strain on our local hospitals. The constable reminds all of us that the hallucinations of pursuing scratching sounds are not contagious, but simply a symptom of already unbalanced and suggestible minds. End quote. Now before we discuss what we've learned so far in this mystery, let me first go over the final document this evening. It is simply a personnel log of everyone here at Penhurst. I was filling out some paperwork for Dr. Plainview when I saw the personnel log on his desk. I recognized this document and immediately asked for a copy. Dr. Plainview was confused but abided. I'm currently holding this next to the list of names I found in the German midshipman's log three days ago, and two of the columns are nearly identical. The crew's birth dates on the personnel log from Dr. Plainview's office correspond to the dates on the German list. It seems too much of a coincidence for several of the names of the crew of a German ship to be shared with the crew of this station. The birthdays, of course, are days, months, and decades off. Perhaps it is that I am exhausted from the storm preparation, but I am unsure of what to make of this. We have multiple accounts of a scratching haunt, and the coincidence of names in regards to a German naval vessel with which we have in common only a single location, Antarctica. Perhaps we will end our show tonight with another entry from the crew of the Endurance before settling in to a restful and needed night of sleep. Begin quote. 11th of November, 1915. Several of us have come to the conclusion that we cannot recall anything about our lives before the crash of the Endurance. Our wives, our children, our parents, friends, jobs, schools. Nothing remains of any of the... Ron! Oh, thank God! The medical bay, it's missing. Do you know how long it's been, Ron? I need to get out. What? Excuse me. Dr. Kennedy, what's wrong? Has someone been stealing the medications again? I'll die remembering the names. I need to get out. I won't let it make me forget. Now, wait a moment, Michael. Wait, wait, wait! 